Swift, Swift's novel, Gulliver's Travels, is arguably the most savage thing ever written in the English language. T.S. Eliot called Jonathan Swift, Swift the master of disgust. And he's a bitter, biting, caustic satirist who seems to have a, a grudge or an animus towards a, a great many of the cultural products of 18th century England. And he particularly dislikes the vice, the evil, the, uh, the uh, hypocrisy associated with contemporary English culture during the early part of the 18th century. And of all the satirists, of all the writers of kind of caustic, cutting comedy, I would say that Jonathan Swift is the most biting, is the most uh, immediately gripping. Uh, he wrote a wide variety of tracts, and all of them have in common the fact that they are grinding some axe against some particular facet of the society he lives in. And he's also extremely witty and biting. He got himself in a good bit of trouble while he was alive because of the fact that his tracts were so effective in lampooning parts of English society that he disapproved of. Now, he was a clergyman. He was dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, and he was a member of the Church of England. Yet, he had considerable sympathy with those that were, in some respects, opposed to England. He often sided with the Irish in their conflicts with England. Sometimes he sided with France. People occasionally accused him of being a kind of crypto-Catholic. In fact, he wasn't. He had, up to a point, a willingness to tolerate certain kinds of religious disunity. But on the whole, he is one of the men who is least tolerant of human depravity and human evil. He once wrote, uh, because people had uh, responded to one of his tracts by attacking him and you know, saying that they didn't enjoy reading what he had to write, he once said, I write for their, for their improvement, not for their approbation. In other words, I don't care whether they like me or not. I'm trying to morally improve. And perhaps in some respects he does, but if you look, think, think back to the lecture I gave on Moliere, there's a certain kind of biting satire, a certain kind of harsh, what I'll call the juvenilian tradition in satire, which is so caustic and so unpleasant that in some respects it tends to undermine the didactic force of an argument by making people nervous and make them, making them laugh kind of furiously, but suspect that really they're not being talked about. In other words, it strikes so close to home, and it's so penetrating, and in some respects so painful, that people find it hard to identify with the kind of really ruthless satire that we, we find in Swift. So he, uh, he has a kind of, he's an important figure in English letters, and he is the best example of the juvenilia tra tradition of extremely harsh, uh, biting satire in the English language. He particularly dislikes politics and politicians. He also dislikes intellectuals. He dislikes many churchmen. He dislikes a good part of the human race. Uh, he once said that uh, he liked individual people, John or Jack or Jim, but on the whole, he doesn't think all that highly of humanity. And well, in some respects, who can blame him? Depends on what you're looking at. Uh, he, he wrote in a letter to Alexander Pope, one of his kind of literary friends, uh, when he just became too angry with the world, he said, drown the world, I am not content with despising it. And you can see why people would accuse Swift of being a misanthrope. He could be quite an unpleasant fellow. And the misanthropy comes out again and again. It's not an occasional thing with Swift. And oddly enough, Swift himself couldn't figure out what people thought him mis misanthropic. He said, I'm just giving out to them what they deserve. 
And besides, you know, in some respects, making criticism is an act of hope. No one makes a criticism that's entirely superfluous. You only criticize where you think that there's some room for improvement, unless you're on a colossal ego trip, and maybe he was. But I suspect deep down that he expected better from human nature and ex expected better from the people around him. And when disappointed in that, he vented his disappointment by writing extremely caustic diatribes against the, the state of the country and the state of the world. Now, one of the things he dislikes the most, and it's hard to pick out the thing that he dislikes the most, but one of the things that's very high up on his list of things that he dislikes is enlightenment optimism. The idea that human beings are intrinsically good and that they have the capacity through the use of natural reason to improve the human condition and make both individual life and the life of society better. He thinks that this is a blasphemous, remember that he's a clergyman, who has a rather Augustinian conception of human nature, the idea that people are intrinsically depraved, that they're intrinsically sinful, that they're born with original sin, means essentially that people are not naturally good. In fact, they're naturally bad, and what they need is divine revelation, and a kind of humble and uh, not, not especially dogmatic approach to religion. Instead, what they need is to submit to the will of God, allow for little latitude given the limitations of human understanding and the way people interpret the Bible, but he especially disliked the tendency in the Enlightenment to raise human beings to the status of demigods, uh, to, to raise them out of the muck of original sin and to make them essentially self-sufficient. He thinks that by encouraging this sort of optimism, by denying intrinsic human depravity, the philosophers of the Enlightenment have actually made people worse because he's, they have, people have embarked upon an impossible task, improving the world through their own use of natural reason, controlling their natural passions in such a way as to make themselves behave well and to make society behave well. On the contrary, in some respects, Swift's novels and his pamphlets as well are about sin. Right? He definitely believes in God's moral order to the world and that there's something wrong with the moral order of the world in the, sense, in the sense that we are intrinsically sinful, intrinsically fallible, and we do not correspond to the ancient uh, Greek tradition of describing human beings as rational animals. We're animals, and we may have a certain element of rationality in us, but there's a great deal more. And to reduce human beings to the status of rational animals is to falsify and distort the human condition. By doing so, by spreading such pernicious errors, the ancient Stoic writers of the ancient and the modern contemporary rationalist tradition in 18th century England made people worse. That's his object of attack. He is going to go after essentially the tradition of intellectual discourse and the approach to the world that comes out of Athens. He's going to stick strictly with Jerusalem. He's going to try and be uh, completely faithful to God's demands, and he's not going to allow for a sort of rationalistic hubris. He's going to say, you who would be more than a mere sinful human being end up being less. This is, I guess, the main theme that, cover, that runs through all of Swift's work. It seems that he's very, he's very dissatisfied with nearly everything he encounters. Now, this is a, fe a feeling, I would say, that he shares with someone like Voltaire, uh, when tomorrow I'll do Candide, and we'll see there that Voltaire at the end counsels us, counsels us to cultivate our gardens. In other words, a kind of ironic, cynical resignation at, the, at, at human frailty. He can't, uh, Swift can't cope with that. He can't adopt that kind of ironic, cynical resignation. Instead, he thunders at us. I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I have a very strong feeling that his favorite book of the Bible was the book of Jeremiah. Don't even know what's in the book of Jeremiah, constant thunderings at the depravity of 
God's chosen people? Well, this has got to be a real favorite of his. Much of the diction, if not the actual, uh, if not the actual structure of the books he writes, is drawn from this. The same attitude, the same prophet howling at the will in the wilderness or howling at us, which is a sort of social wilderness, you see a little, quite a bit of that in Swift. Now, by adopting a sort of juvenilian position, by writing caustic, bitter, angry satire, he's an extremely angry man, what you get is an attempt to make evil not ludicrous, which is what we see in, say, Horace, among the Roman poets, and also, and, and uh, we see that that same tradition continued on in Moliere, making vice ludicrous or ridiculous, and thus kind of softly suggest poking fun at evil. Instead of making ludicrous, he makes it odious. He makes it disgusting. He shows how swinish and filthy and wretched we are. Now, this could be a kind of uh, ex extrapolation of his own self-loathing. It's possible. Or it could be that he wants to put himself on a, on a pedestal somehow outside of that and say in some respects that he's better and in a position to judge us. He wrote his own epitaph, and it's a real charmer. I think you'll like it. It gets right to the point. He wanted to put on his tombstone, and I don't know if they actually put this in there, but he said, uh, savage indignation no longer tears his heart. Well, okay, I think that speaks for itself. I mean, he's finally dead, so he's not full of savage indignation. Someone that can afford that kind of indignation is either someone with a tremendously overdeveloped sense of sin or somebody with a tremendously overdeveloped sense of his own righteousness. Hard to tell which. He's, he's kind of careful about this. Well, let's think of some of the things he wrote before I get to, um, to Gulliver's Travels because the set of things that he penned are always caustic. They're always acid. And they're really funny. He wrote a wonderful thing. I mean, remember, I think we're talking about early 18th century England. He wrote a wonderful piece called An Argument Against the Abolition of Christianity. <laughs> now, if you stop and think about what, the fact that England has an established church, right, nobody's seriously proposing the abolition of Christianity, but by taking it too far, right, he does point out and, uh, the kind of atheistic or the skeptical tendencies of Enlightenment deism. You see, Swift thought that rationalism, that, that Greek tradition that comes out of Athens of unassisted human reason, ultimately leads to deism. And he says deism, or thinks that deism, if you take it seriously and, and reason it out, ultimately leads to atheism. And atheism is the source of all our depravity. We've been given this great gift from God. He's given us scripture. He's revealed his will to us. And these hubristic, these arrogant, would-be philosophers disdain God's law, trust in the unaided use of reason, and as a consequence, generate the greatest possible kind of human depravity. So he's writing against that. There's a wonderful piece also called A Modest Proposal. Have any of you read that? It's, it's quite well known. Um, it's a very interesting piece. Uh, I, I assign it, or I, I have assigned it in the past when I've taught literature, and I remember in particular, it's a great anecdote, I, I was teaching it to freshmen. I told them, look, go read A Modest Proposal. It's a wonderful book. You'll have a very good time. It's short and pithy, and you, you'll laugh li like crazy. It's a very funny book. And I remember one student came into my class. She was about 18 years old. She came into the classroom early, and she said, Professor, this man wants to kill children and eat them. <laughs> he also wants to kill babies and skin them and turn them into gloves. This is the danger of irony. If the irony is a little too strong and a little too powerful, people don't notice that it is irony. And she looked at me with, at, with eyes the size of saucers, because first of all, how could anybody propose this? And then she looked at me as though I ought to be tremendously guilty, saying, how could you ask your undergraduates to read a thing like this? He wants to kill and eat babies. 
it took me quite a while to unravel this for her, but the idea is that when irony becomes a little too strong, it can become difficult for the uninitiated to actually penetrate it, it can be so strong. So this guy lays it on awful thick. All right. He wrote tracts about contemporary politics. He wrote something against the debasement of the Irish currency. Uh, a large reward was given to find out the anonymous author of this, but no one would turn him in, but just about everyone knew that he had written it. Uh, and he was considered, he was, because he was so caustic and unrestrained in his criticisms, he could never find favor among either of the British political parties. He started out as a Whig, but the Whigs wouldn't give him what he wanted, which was an important uh, clerical position, a bishopric, and he moved towards the Tories. They seemed more conservative and solid. But the Tories didn't care for him either, because again, the, the pen is a little too acid and it seems to apply to everyone. Um, in other words, he's not, uh, he doesn't shoot with a rifle, he shoots with a shotgun, and by God, he's going to kill everything. And as far as he's concerned, everything deserves to be shot, or almost everything anyway. There's so much depravity in the world, no matter where you point your gun, you're likely to point, to point it at something that deserves to have the trigger pulled. So he just shoots away. And if there's any book that shoots live ammunition and shoots to kill, it's Gulliver's Travels. Uh, just about every element in European high culture is criticized here. European politics is criticized here. The pretensions of pseudo-religious figures are criticized. And in addition, it's a very entertaining book. It's really funny. I mean, it's a kind of cruel humor. I mean, it's not nice, kindly humor, but you can't help but laugh when you read this book. It's a wonderful piece of work. Now, the one main character is our friend Gulliver, Lemuel Gulliver. It's hard to know what to think of him because character development isn't a big concern with, Gull with Swift. What he's mostly trying to do is make comments about contemporary society. So Gulliver isn't an especially well-developed character, but I suspect that the reason you, that the word Gulliver was chosen is because it's supposed to have a sort of resonance with gullible. In other words, he, he believes everything he sees. And he, because he's represented as being gullible and he's represented as being trustworthy and honest, he adds that much more force to his uh, to his uh, fictional, uh, to his fictional uh, travels. So, although Gulliver himself is a kind of average man, a sort of everyman, in fact, he's a, a little bit more than ordinary because he's actually at least somewhat morally good. He's not as bad as the average run of humanity, maybe because he's dumb. It's hard to say. But he's not arrogant, he's not pretentious, and those are things that Swift hates. He's kind of unimaginative. And he constantly says, look, this is really what happened. These travels really occurred. And the things that he takes on, uh, on, at face value are a little bit implausible. But then again, that's also true of many of the readers of Swift. Uh, one of the contemporaries of Swift, when he read the book, when it first came out, because it made a tremendous sensation, uh, wrote in a review that he thought that these travels were most unlikely. You can see what you're dealing with there, right? And you can see why Swift would be kind of ticked off at these people. I mean, there are some real muttonheads reading books at this point. All right. First book, because it's divided into four books. Gulliver in Lilliput, the land of the pygmies, six-inch people, right? Which is a kind of an implausible narration. You have to admit that, yes, it is kind of hard to believe that he was captured by people who were six inches tall. And what does he find in Lilliput? What he finds in Lilliput is his epitome of political corruption. In other words, the people of Lilliput remind us a great deal of the people, of the people who live in 18th century England. As a matter of fact, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between all kinds of political doings in the early part of the 18th century in England and the things that go on in Lilliput. And he has nothing but contempt and spleen for the contemporary political scene, and it really comes out with a vengeance in his treatment in the first book. 
Now, what do we find? First of all, we find deformity of the body. In other words, there's something really wrong with these people because they're tiny, they're six inches tall. And may I suggest here that there's a, there's a sort of correspondence between physical deformity and moral deformity. In other words, all the people in Lilliput, or almost all of them, are evil. They're morally corrupt and depraved. They're consciously self-seeking. They're power-hungry. They're deceptive. They're ungrateful. They're unkind. They have a tremendous number of kind of moral liabilities. And this is represented in the fact that they're essentially moral, not just physical pygmies. They're tiny. Now, that's the, you know, the first of, our, of Gulliver's adventures. And in that respect, he has a great deal to say about uh, the things that were going on immediately around him. In the first case, there's the, uh, there's the major, uh, sort of the prime minister of Lilliput. His name is Flimnap. Also, uh, like Charles Dickens, Swift is able to think of great names for things because obviously he's able to make it up out of whole cloth. Flimnap has a surprising similarity to Walpole. And he's very adept at political maneuvering and he's rather unscrupulous and there are some concern about the chastity of his wife and things like that. He gets in all the possible digs towards Walpole and it's put together in a very kind of succinct and concise way. He also talks about the uh, emperor of, or the, the king of Lilliput, who is described as a remarkably handsome man who's taller just by a little bit than the other people around him. So he's, you know, six and a quarter inches tall, which is a big deal in Lilliput. And he talks about the courtliness of the king and, and his, his demeanor, his royal demeanor and things like that. And obviously this is a dig at George I, the current king of England. In other words, George I was a notoriously ugly buffoon. By comparing him to this regal figure who's a full six and a quarter inches tall, um, obviously, he's cutting George I down to size. It's a really unkind book, and he constantly makes unkind observations about everybody in it. Now, they're, in, they're at war against another island, which is close by, and the Lilliputians are at war with this other island on account of the fact that there's been a continued hostility for many years between them, and also there's been internal civil war within within Lilliput itself on account of the way people break their eggs. Now here we have a lampoon of the frivolous uh, sources of warfare in 18th century and 17th century Europe. The wars of religion were fought over weighty issues like whether uh, the wine that's used in the mass or in religious services, whether that's grape juice or whether that's God's blood. That would be a good reason to kill thousands of people. And you can see how after observing that kind of folly again and again and again, <clears throat> this would really get on Swift's nerves. And this is his way of saying, look, <clears throat> the reasons for your wars are in fact self-serving, and what sets you into a path of violence shows without a doubt that A, you are not virtuous, and B, you are hardly rational animals. Uh, the fight that goes on in Lilliput is over the, the important question of whether eggs should be broken at the little end or at the big end a dopey reason for a war, and they've been prosecuting this for some time. <clears throat> in addition, there are two factions or parties in Lilliput. And the reason why this is important is because in the political tradition that comes all the way out of ancient Greece and to some extent also out of Jerusalem, the idea of faction or party is thought of as intrinsically bad. It's not until uh, somewhat later, I guess about another 100 years or so, or 50 years, that we're going to see Edmund Burke work out the idea of a legitimate opposition, the idea that faction and party is not an intrinsic hindrance to good government or to governmental stability. But back at the time in 1729 when this book is, is published, we hadn't developed the idea of a loyal opposition. Faction and party mean depravity, corruption, self-seeking. 
all of which suggest that the moral status of the people involved in it is a very low one. So Lilliput is riven into violent factions, and these factions are the high heels and the low heels, because the big uh, point of distinction, or the big uh, breaking point between the high heel and the low heel party, which correspond to the Tories and the Whigs, incidentally, in contemporary English politics, is the size of the heels you wear in your shoes. So there's the most violent prosecutions and perjuries and persecutions and all kinds of things associated with the heels on your shoes and how you break your eggs. And this is Swift's way of saying, look, contemporary English politics is depraved. Compared to any normal uh, kind of specimen of human kind, uh, a kind of at least, if not tremendously virtuous, at least not tremendously vicious figure like Gulliver, he seems like a giant, not just physically, but morally. He is in the land of the ethical Lilliputians. And the land of the ethical Lilliputians turns out to be exactly the place where Swift is. So he's really kind of uh, settling a few scores here, quite clearly. Now, how does he get there? Well, he is ship he goes a we, we spent a good bit of time talking about sea voyages in the last couple of lectures, and uh, Gulliver decides to go on a sea voyage, and he's wrecked, and he winds up on the shore, and they pin him down, and he has all these entertaining adventures, most of which are uh, a vehicle by which he can get a kind of uh, a crude laugh out of the audience. There's a lot of dirty jokes, and in addition to that, there are also a lot of, I mean, especially for a contemporary, there are a lot of obvious parallels to contemporary politics. That's one of the reasons he got himself in so much trouble. Eventually, he decides to leave Lilliput on account of the fact that although he's done great military services for the Lilliputians, they're going to respond to that by gouging out his eyes. They've decided that he's a dangerous man, and they are so ungrateful and so inconsiderate and so unkind that they're going to play power politics and neglect their obligations to a man that's helped them out. Typical of the kind of political thinking of the time. Now, from book one, where we deal with Lilliput, we end up moving to the second book in which things are reversed. Instead of people being six inches tall, we're going to find people that are 60 feet tall. We're going to, land, we're going to go to Brobdenag. And this place is a place of giants. It's the land of the giants. And it's very interesting what goes on in Brobdenag. The people there are very virtuous and are very moral. And it turns out that the political system is well run. This is a way of talking about the idea that the ancients or the models that we based our political theory upon are in fact our moral superiors by a great margin. We are essentially Lilliputians compared to them. Right? And the things that he has to say about contemporary British politics in that second book are really unpleasant, and they're so unpleasant I really want to read them because they're really kind of nice. <laughs> no, you, you'll like this. You, you can't get around with this. He has a, a long discussion of politics with the king, and the king keeps him around as a kind of ornament to the court. He's kind of a funny fellow, and the people have been nice to him, although they've been a little bit careless with him. He's gone through a few scrapes with a frog that threatened to eat him and a monkey that was going to take him away, and things like that. There are a couple of kind of low jokes in the course of this. But what's, what it's really about, what the kind of underlying message is, is that contemporary British politics is corrupt, particularly when we, click, when we compare it with classical models. Look what the king says. They talked about a, uh, the history of England, and of course Gulliver, trying to defend his native land, witless as he is, doesn't do a very good job. The king says... He was perfectly astonished with the historical account I gave him of our affairs during the last century, protesting it was only a heap of conspiracies, rebellions, murders, massacres, revolutions, banishments. The very worst effects that avarice, faction, hypocrisy, perfidiousness, cruelty, rage, madness, hatred, envy, lust, malice, and ambition could produce. 
Swift couldn't figure out why people thought he was misanthropic. <laughs> and he's talking about the, contemporary, the, the politicians around him. It's not like he's taking on people who are not in a position to do him harm. So he obviously, obviously had an axe to grind, but also had no sense of, what he, uh, of politics, in the sense that he doesn't know how to advance his own career. One of the reasons one suspects that he was rather frustrated in his desire to move up the ecclesiastical hierarchy is that he didn't know when to shut his mouth. If you, no, if, if you look at any of the contemporary accounts of going to dinner at uh, Jonathan Swift's house, he was not a nice man. I mean, he makes Don Rickles look like a real prize. <laughs> no, he would go up, I mean, honest to God, have people in for dinner and say, um, is your wife a whore? Or are you a drunkard? Are you, are you sure you're not a sot? And he will constantly keep up this badgering, and you get the sense that he really deserved the misanthropic description that he got uh, among later writers. The final part of book two, which is <clears throat> most entertaining, is when the king gives his summary description of what <clears throat> the contemporary English people were like. And it really does cut Englishmen down to size. Perhaps it cuts all of us down to size. But what the king says is that, I cannot but conclude that the bulk of your natives, uh, that you, the bulk of your natives are the most pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. Well, again, it keeps, it's very much in keeping with the tone of this. In other words, compared with the ancients, and I think that's what book two is about. In other words, we move from book one, where we're dealing with contemporary politics and the status of you know, British-French relations, to the golden age of, say, Greek or Roman politics, when men were men and people were virtuous and there was no bribery, no theft, no corruption. Well, by comparison with that, we are all moral pygmies. Uh, when <clears throat> Gulliver offers to tell the king about gunpowder, he explains to him what gunpowder is. He says, look, it's a great thing. You, you mix some chemicals together, and then you're able to put these iron balls inside these iron tubes and shoot them at people and at, at cities and kill tremendous numbers of them all at the same time. And the king says, if I ever hear about that again, I'm going to have you killed. I don't want to hear about that, you little vermin. And of course, in England, that's one of the major technological changes that the advocates of modern thought, right, brought out, trotted out, to show this, their superiority over the ancients. He says, if the ancients had known about that, they would have been moral enough to despise it, and they would have been moral enough to despise you, you little vermin. A very harsh indictment of the society. It comes from very, very harsh. So, in the first place, we get the contemporary scene. In the second book, we're going to get the comparison with ancient political virtue. And we come away feeling that contemporary Europeans, particularly contemporary Englishmen, suffer by comparison when they're brought to in the same room or in the same area with the great Brobdenagians. Now, there's one problem that, that Swift has to so constantly solve. In other words, there are four parts to the novel, and he makes these various travels, but he's got to get out of there. And here he is in a land full of 60-foot people, and he's got to figure out how he's going to get away. Handles that very nicely. Um, a little girl is among the people that find him, named uh, Glumkelditch, and what she does is leave him in a little box. He gets his own little room, and she carries him around like a lunchbox in the hand of a little girl, and there he is inside, and he's got his, you know, his room and his parlor and all that kind of thing. And she they go to the seashore, and she leaves him out. Down comes a fortuitous eagle, who, for reasons unspecified, decides that it wants to take the box away, and it does, drops it in the ocean. Gulliver is uh, floating around in his gradually sinking box, and then, just by coincidence, he gets picked up by uh, mariners who take him back home. And of course, the people, when he begins to deal with the regular facts of human life, when, you're, when contemporary Europeans pick him up and take him out of the land of the pygmies and the land of the giants, they always think he's crazy. Why? Because he tells them stuff like, well, I just came from a land of 60-foot people, and that is kind of a, of a bit much to ask of 
people's credulity. So uh, Gulliver, or, or rather Swift, once wrote a book, called, or a little pamphlet actually, called The Battle Between the New and the Old Books. In many respects, it has a lot to do with the contemporary arguments about the core curriculum, whether the old stuff or the new stuff is really the best. Some things really never change. It seems clear when we look at book two that he would side with the old books. New is usually bad. He's a very kind of conservative, in some respects, reactionary thinker, saying that there was a former golden age when people were good, and now we fall into this level of depravity. I mean, when you li listen to the litany produced by the king of Brobdenag about contemporary Europeans, you can see that there's obviously been a fall from grace. Now, the most important book of Gulliver's Travels, the most important section, is section three. And I also think that it's probably the, not the best written. You know, this is not the most entertaining, it's not the funniest, but it's the most general and sweeping indictment of European culture. It's nasty. It's really ugly. And what we get here is the island of Laputa. Here's what goes on. Gulliver, after being rescued again from the eagle's talons, from the sea, goes back to London. What does he do? Gets back on a ship so he can go out and have more adventures. It seems like English literary figures are doing that in this century. Well, goes back, and in this case, unlike the first two cases, he's not tossed upon an island on account of some natural force, on account of a storm. Here what causes it is the fact that he's captured by pirates. He gets separated from his ship, and what happens is he's captured by Japanese pirates with one Dutchman among them. And of course the Dutchman comes off much worse than the horrid, savage Japanese. Because he knows Christianity, but is willing to trample upon the cross so he can uh, trade with the Japanese and interact with the Japanese. It was part of, their, uh, of the resistance Japan had to Western European culture, and particularly Christianity. So he's picked up by them, and the Dutchman of course wants to kill him immediately. Right, again, another savage dig at Western European culture. But the Japanese say, no, let's not do that. Let's just set him adrift in an open boat, which they do. And amazingly enough, he shows up on a barren island, which turns out to be very near the island of Laputa. Now, Laputa is a funny term, first of all. Um, it's borrowed, obviously, from the Spanish word for the whore. Right? And uh, there's a wonderful line from Luther that I think is being referred to here. Uh, Luther talks about that great whore reason. Okay. In other words, this is where he's going to settle his score with all the intellectuals in Western Europe. And it's brutal. No one emerges from this unscathed. They end, the, the island of Laputa is unusual because it flies. And obviously this is a product of modern Western European technology. The scientific revolution has given people unprecedented control over nature. And now they can make islands that fly around. And this island is inhabited by people that are very peculiar and also very immoral and very depraved. And they're all real scientific, and they like science and math a great deal, which may suggest to you that there's a connection between these developments in modern science and mathematics and a kind of moral corruption. In the first place, all the people on the island of Laputa study primarily abstract things, uh, the theory of music, they study mathematics, they study anything that's practical. Practical uh, considerations are denigrated here. People, uh, the tailors in Laputa don't just take your measurements when they're going to you know, make a suit for you. Actually, they use trigonometry. And of course, nothing works properly because the trigonometry isn't applied well, so everyone has ill-fitting clothes. And they can't draw a right, they can't make a right angle. So their carpenters build terrible houses that are ill thought out, but they represent tremendous mathematical calculations. And of course, that becomes an end in itself in Laputa. The whore reason, or the great whore reason, is in fact taking over the culture and decreasing the quality of human, human life across the board. Now, 
not only is reason a great whore, and not only are they on the island of Laputa, but all the women in Laputa are adulterous. In other words, all the married ones commit adultery in the physical sense with other men outside, their, uh, outside the flying island. And all the men seem to have kind of wedded themselves to science before their wives. There's a sort of psychic or kind of mental adultery going on there. They don't notice that their wives commit adultery right in front of them. In other words, their wife can be having sex with someone on, you know, in the same room and they don't notice. Why? Because their eyes are skewed. One eye is skewed in. In other words, it turns around and they look inside themselves. And the other one is toward the zenith of the sky. Mm -hmm. All right? And do you know who's, or what might be at the bottom of that is the idea of Cartesianism. Think about what, Cart what Descartes does in the Discourse on Method or in the, uh, the book on Metaphysics. Introspection allows us to start knowledge from a completely unarguable foundation by looking within and seeing what it is that you can be skeptical about what you can't allows you to create knowledge of physics and knowledge of the heavens. In other words, Descartes, by, doing, by performing a sort of introspective move, is attempting to create a foundation for the natural sciences. It seems to me that the people at Laputa are Cartesians, and that's, who he's, you know, that's what axe he's grinding at that point. Now, conversation isn't really a, a widely practiced art or a very well-developed art in Laputa because people keep drifting into reveries of thought. So they have ser servants go around with them with an inflated bladder that has some peas in it, and they just smack them in the head every once in a while when they get lost in thought. <laughs> right? So if you can imagine, there's lots of funny jokes here, dopey slapstick and high cultural criticism at the same time, which is one of the things that makes this a sort of perennial favorite. Uh, men who don't care about the adultery of their wives uh, are the same, kinds, same kind of depraved, corrupt men that are going to not care about the structure of political order. Uh, Laputa exercises a sort of tyranny over a vast kind of continent-wide space called Balinarbi. And this place is, I suspect, analogous to, the, to Ireland the way England tends to dominate and oppress Ireland. Well, what the Flying Island does is very nice. If the people in Balinarby don't uh, uh, give them the appropriate taxes and don't uh, obey the law, they just throw stones off the Flying Island down upon them and crush their houses and crush the people. If it turns out that that won't coerce them, they just settle the island right down and squash them all like bugs. Now, it's, it's indicated or hinted that the relationship between Ireland and England, the attempt to dominate this place, is being talked about here. And uh, it's a fairly good analogy, crushing something with the weight of your country, the weight of your power. It's nicely done. Now, on Balinarby, there's, an, uh, there's a city, a main city, Legado. And Legado, fortunately enough, has an academy of projectors. Now, the academy of projectors is the analog of the, Royal of the Royal Society, those men who had been most closely involved with the scientific revolution, with scientific development, with things like Boyle's Law of Gases and the development of Newtonian mechanics and all that sort of thing. And Swift has nothing but contempt, actually outright hatred for this. He thinks it is an evil thing. He does not like this sort of innovation. He'd rather inquire into the state of your soul rather than into the state of nature. And in Legato, he gets a tour of the academy. And his guide, who is the, apparently the one wise man in the whole place, doesn't like the academy of projectors either. And he, he gives, the, he gives uh, Gulliver some money. And he says, look, uh, these really wise men, 
they're going to want a few dollars at the end of this because that's what all real wise men want. In other words, they make a few dollars and continue their researches, which really don't go anywhere. And their researches are wildly impractical and very funny. There's one guy that's apparently got a research grant who's working out a way to extract sunlight from cucumbers. <laughs> so that's deep science, right? You are. There's another one who would like to, who's been working on a process by which we turn excrement back into food. <laughs> Everybody reacted that way, right? Um, well, there are a number of other things that they're involved with. Uh, someone has written, a, uh, has put together a machine, and I've read some of the books produced by this machine. Um, what it does is get the, all the words of their language and then puts the, the words together arbitrarily. And when they find a grammatical sentence, they take it out and they stick it into a book. And when they have the right number of sentences, that's the right length, they stick the book onto the shelf and they call it modern literary criticism. No? <laughs> I've read some of these books, and they do really exist. And uh, to a great extent, He's showing that it is possible to be witty and anti-intellectual at the same time. Right? Uh, this is intellect in the service of faith or in the service of complete submission to God's will. And the best way to do that is to make this not just ludicrous but odious to show how bad and how depraved these people are. He also gets a tour of the practical implications of the society of the Academy of Projectors. In other words, he gets a tour of the island and he sees that nothing works right. In other words, all the fields are not just fallow, but they're a mess. Uh, someone has gotten the good idea of planting food in the fields, not seeds, but food itself, and then setting swine out in the fields so they can root it up. That will save us a lot of labor. We don't have to plow anymore. Of course, you don't get any food that way, but that's a minor consideration, considering that this is a scientific breakthrough. Right? He has a really anti-scientific stance, which I don't think is replicated in any other major writer. I mean, it's hard to imagine someone so clever and so anti-intellectual at the same time. Now, he wants to get out of here. Gulliver does not like where he is, and who can blame him? And he wants to go to Lugnag, but he can't, unfortunately. Another one of those nice coincidences. So he's going to take a day trip or a week trip, a, a quick trip, to Glubdubdrib. Now, that's a very Dickensian kind of a word, Glubdubdrib. What a nice island. Glubdubdrib is the island of the sorcerers. Fortunate that we have these, uh, these sorcerers. Do you know what they can do? They can bring in the souls of the dead and have them assume human form for 24 hours. You get to talk to them which is very convenient for Swift, because having dispatched natural science, he is now going to have a go at the humanities. All right? So first things first, let's bring in ancient politicians. So Caesar and Brutus come in, and he has a, uh, uh, Gulliver has a little chat with them, and uh, what he finds out is that all the things that he's read in history books, they're all lies. Historians are all liars, it's all inaccurate, and if history, history is seen as one of the kind of the central disciplines of the humanities, obviously this is A, a waste of time, at best entertaining, but most likely pernicious. All right, so history, chuck it out. Look, there isn't a, an honest word that historians have written. I talked to Caesar and, and, and Brutus, and it was nothing like that. He gets the real dope. About time somebody did. Then he decides we'll have a go at the philosophers and at the poets, let's not hold back, and at the literary critics. He summons up the ghost of Aristotle and the ghost of Homer. And Aristotle is given a chance to meet not just uh, Gulliver and the sorcerer, he's given a chance also to meet the people who have written commentaries on Aristotle, and a, a chance to examine their doctrines in their books, a chance to consider what has been put in Aristotle's mouth. And Aristotle says, you don't understand my work. You don't understand anything. Get out of here. I never said anything like that. You don't understand what I'm trying to drive at. And most of you people should be forced to get honest work. 
This is completely dishonest. All the Aristotle, in other words, condemns all the interpreters of Aristotle. I think Duns Scotus and some other scholastic figure is brought in, and it's a howlingly funny passage. It's really a great passage. And the same sort of thing happens with Homer. All the people who have written treatises on Homer come in, and Homer, who is, turns out to be, incidentally, a much more attractive figure than Aristotle, and I think it's trying to suggest that poetry or literature is a far more attractive discipline than philosophy, perhaps because we have here a literary figure writing the book. Um, he looks at the commentators, commentaries on Homer, and Homer says, no, get this out of here. I, look, rosy-fingered dawn, let's go back to the, to the basics here. Don't tell me that I said that. Don't tell me that I'm implying that. I'm Homer, I wrote it, and that just never happened. What this reminds me, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, uh, uh, Woody Allen's movie, Annie Hall, Right, where they're online and somebody's talking about Marshall McLuhan, and then Woody Allen is actually able to go and get Marshall McLuhan to bring him in and say, look, you don't know anything about what I'm talking about. Shut up. I'm tired of listening to you. Now, you have to get somebody alive if you're going to do a movie, but one of the nice things about this vehicle here in, in Swift is that because he's not doing something that's visual, he's doing something intellectual, he can choose anybody he wants. So he chooses key figures, Caesar and Pompey, uh, Caesar and Brutus. Why? Ancient politicians were much more moral than modern politicians who don't really understand the nature of political virtue. Can get Homer, the key figure, kind of the, the guy who starts the Western literary tradition. Can get Aristotle, the most important figure in the Western philosophical tradition. When we are finished at Glubdubdrib, which is still a wonderful word, we are convinced that all intellectuals are liars, and if they're not liars, they're incompetent. And if they are not incompetent or liars, then they're probably very few and far between. We may have come away with a rather positive view of Aristotle or Caesar or uh, Homer in this, but that's just about the only person that comes out well. And none of them are Englishmen. None of them are contemporary Europeans. All of them are dead. That's not an ex All the good people are dead, and I'm stuck with you. That's basically Swift's attitude towards the rest of the world. You can see why people find him misanthropic. He is. Now, after he's finished a week of lambasting the humanities, he's finished with the, with the scientists a little bit before that, he decides that it's time to go to Lugnag. Another great word, Lugnag. Well, what he finds in Lugnag is an unusual group of people called the Struldbrugs. And the Struldbrugs have the unique advantage of living forever. And he says, are you kidding me, or do people really live forever? And he says, oh, yes, occasionally, once every blue moon, once every great period of time, we find someone who is marked, we can tell from the beginning, that they will never die. And he, said, and he, and he rhapsodizes about this. Finally, I found it. Rather than depend upon ancient uh, intellectual traditions, rather than depend upon unaided reason, to have the, the cumulative human experience of living for century after century, what great discoveries I would make, what great poems I would write, what great things I could do if I never had to face death, what a happy man I would be if I had managed to beat death. So much of ancient Greek mythology, Roman mythology, uh, literature all through history has been around the possibility of living forever. In other words, it's a heaven on earth in some respects. What happy people the Struldbrugs must be. He unfortunately finds out that that's totally wrong. That in fact, cumulative human experience is about the worst thing that can happen to you, and there's no one so unhappy as a Struldbrug. Why? Well, because they denied the solace of death, which is an unimaginably black evaluation of the human condition. One of the real high points in our life should be dying. And if you had to live without any possibility of dying, you could see why someone would sink right into despair because the body is going to gradually decay. There's nothing they can do about it. At about 80 years old, they begin to lose their memory. So instead of being able to 
accumulate knowledge and derive uh, wisdom from you know, the vast varieties of experience they have. They forget where they are. They have to be led around. They won't even have the good grace to die, and they're forced to put up with this eternally. Instead of being an, uh, uh, this worldly heaven, it turns out to be a this worldly hell, where they move back into, infantile, into an infantile state, and this infantile state turns out to be perpetual. In other words, there's hardly anything worse than human life. And if it's going to get worse than that, the only thing worse than that would be more human life. God, that's harsh. And the whole book has roughly that evaluation of the human condition. Now, the last of our, of our chapters in Gulliver's Travels is the land of the Winhams. Land of the Winhams is a land where human beings are natural, which is to say they're disgusting swine, and where horses are rational animals. It's a, a little bit like a Mr. Ed meets the Enlightenment. Because the horses can talk, and they're really smart, and they're deistic, and they're rationalistic philosophers. They are, in fact, rational animals, which Swift is suggesting is something that human beings are not and cannot be. These rational animals don't have much in the way of passion. They have a nice, orderly society. They're kind and virtuous. And Gulliver th thinks that they're great. Of course, when he comes on shore, they, the, the Winhams say, my God, we have here uh, a yahoo, but the yahoo is clean and doesn't eat carrion. The yahoo doesn't seem like it wants to kill. The yahoo doesn't seem like it's the most distorted and perverse of the animals in the, human, in, in the world. Because of that, they're not quite sure what to make of him. They think he might be something more than a yahoo, but in addition to being more than a yahoo, he certainly seems less than a winham. Well, the Winhams don't know quite what to do with them, so they get their, their assembly together and they, uh, they do some resolving, some consideration of this. And the question to be debated was whether the Yahoo should be exterminated from the face of the earth. And the Winhams, being rational philosophers, say, well, why don't we get rid of this e the most evil of all animals? And uh, they say further that the Yahoos were the most filthy, noisome, and deformed animal which nature ever produced. So they were most, uh, furthermore, they were the most restive and indocible, mischievous and malicious. In other words, human beings are, instead of the top of the animal scale, the bottom of the animal scale. Instead of being rational animals, they use their rationality as an excuse for further evil rather than as a break upon their evil inclinations. Well, he eventually gets away from the Winhams, comes back and starts talking to his horses, lives in the stable, can hardly stand the sight of human beings. And it's as telling a comment as you can make about our aspirations towards being something other than sinful. We can never escape our sinful nature except at the cost of becoming something other than humans. Because we can't become Winhams, us yahoos, who are not rational animals, can do nothing better than accept our condition and gradually put up with the inevitable evils of human life and the sinful depravity of the human condition.